stuff You found him and you retweeted a lot Now some posts on Facebook online Turns out he's been racist the whole time Look out, here comes the milkshake dog Is he problematic? Listen, bud Leadership from Stan Martin Chug Even though it drives all the neolibs He posts Pepe memes and Dan Fries Look out, here comes the milkshake dog You've got mutual falls and shit out of love Avatars, he ignores He's got a weird Twitter name But he's a big ass lord Look out, here comes the milkshake duck Look out It's episode 25 of Humor and the Abject With Sean J. Patrick Carney You fucking screedlers Ken Bone, the man who stole America's heart At the most recent presidential debate Is learning what it's like to be famous Let's go since the debate, he participated in a Reddit Ask Me Anything session. To announce the session, Bone included his Reddit username in a Twitter post. Users quickly looked up his name and found that he shared his thoughts on everything. It was fun for two weeks when he was on our team. But like most blind men, he's just a topsy Delete your interactions or your milkshake butts Feeling blown out back to him Even though it is a podcast, I'm paid to him To him, all mine is no real life Making jokes and you're just crying Here comes the milkshake duck Bad boy, bad boy, bad boy It was just like I don't think I was ever a bad boy. I don't think my work was about being a bad boy. It wasn't about being like a snotty teenager or this or that. Or that I was an anti-intellectual. Obviously, I'm not an anti-intellectual. And, and yet I felt that these kinds of terms were used to put me in my place. Because my work didn't fit the canon of work that was popular at that moment. It was simply like a cheap put-down. Welcome to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you burl-balling beast burling power-balling screedlers. This is the studio manager, staff only. I'd like to apologize about the intro song regarding Milkshake Duck because in it, I said that this was episode 25. I was fucking wrong. Little did we know that last Friday, we'd be releasing a bonus episode. That was episode 25. It featured the lead guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter from Guantanamo Bay Watch. His name is Jason Powell. Give it a spin, we think you'll enjoy it. Anyways, this is episode 26. We're sponsored this week by the Milkshake Duck, a new bar snack called Drink Arrows, and the poem Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 26 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. What a week. What a week it's been. Uh, 
if you didn't listen to it, uh, on Friday I put out a bonus episode with a short interview with Jason Powell from the band Guantanamo Baywatch, who happened to be in town. Uh, Jason and I have been friends for about 10 years, and it was really fun to catch up with him and hear about life as a road dog. Uh, today in the studio, I've got Orlando Estrada, who's a visual and performance artist right here in Brooklyn, New York. He grew up in Florida. Uh, he's got a BFA from Florida International University, an MFA from the University of Florida. He's one of the co-founders of Incarnata Social Club, a hybrid performance art and nightlife series that's been going since 2016, early 2016. Uh, he's into badass supernatural stuff. He does paranormal research, hot yoga. He collects minerals. We met in 2015 when he did a residency at BHQFU while I was working there, and I had a wonderful time partying with him and watching him build these totally ridiculous out-of-this-world sculptures. He just got back from a residency in Seoul, South Korea, and it is a damn pleasure to have him in the studio today. So, Orlando Estrada, welcome to Human the Abject. How are you, my dude? Hi, I'm doing great. Uh, just having a cool Friday. Yeah? Yeah? yeah. How's the week been? Uh, it's been a hard week, you know? I I do a lot. I stay busy, so this is kind of my day off. Friday's your day off. Friday's my only day off. Oh well, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming up to Greenpoint and joining me in the studio. You got a you got to experience the bevy machine. Yeah, it, um, it's really nice. It's cucumber. You got cucumber. I yeah, got cucumber flavored water. Yeah, this is like the hundred and thirtieth time I've mentioned bevy on the podcast, <laughs> and I would appreciate some money from them. Um, so right off the bat, for anybody who's listening who isn't familiar with your work, um, could you describe a little bit what it is that you do? I mean, you make sculpture, you're a performance artist, but I kind of feel like that doesn't really scratch the surface of all the things that you're interested in. So what what type of work is Orlando Estrada's, I'm trying to think of a French word for, uh, <laughs> is there a French word for like, I a, don't, okay. I don't know. I don't speak French. <laughs> Me neither. But um, yeah, I guess. I, I have trouble like categorizing what I do and I, I'm really like over the term interdisciplinary because yeah. I, I, I don't think it's very descriptive. What about multidisciplinary? That's even worse. Transdisciplinary? <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's, intradisciplinary? I, I mean, I guess it's because of art school that like I, I stick to the, the term conceptual art. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I guess that's the only way that I really feel comfortable describing what I do. And I, I, and that's still like a troubling term because when I think of conceptual art, I think of like things that are completely ephemeral, which I, I don't make things that right, are ephemeral. Or, or really minimal or something. And yeah. you, you are a bit of a maximalist. I'm, uh, that's definitely <laughs> what I am. I, I'm very over the top and Baroque. Oh, yeah. yeah. You are definitely Baroque. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, yeah, conceptual art, I, I don't know. Um, I, I say co- that my work is best described as conceptual because it it's about ideas, and I, yeah. So do those ideas drive the form? Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> and <laughs> cool. And they're they're everything's made intuitively, and yeah. So I guess if if there was an umbrella to to you know hide everything I do underneath it would be conceptual art yeah yeah and and then that manifests in in sculpture or or other objects or performances or or paintings or you know any number of things whose stuff were you when you were younger and you started to think okay I'm gonna follow this art thing whose work were you excited about I mean this is really like cliche and like Ooh, can I guess it's really corny Hmm. I feel like I don't want to be judged. Marina? But. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
is Marina corny? I refrain from commenting. <laughs> I, I don't want to offer. A, I know. Sorry, some, I, was, I know some people who are, I think are employed by her. I was. So try, I was know. trying to set you up. You caught me. <laughs> uh, well, um, who? Who's corny? Salvador Dali. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's well. That's okay. That's like. I feel like Salvador Dali's cool. It's just that all dorm rooms have a poster of his in it. But aside from that, pretty. I don't know. He seems like he stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, it's Dali. Like he's like one of the masters. But like, I mean, I was doing a lot of hallucinogens, mm-hmm. so it, that like that work just made sense. What was your go-to hallucinogen? Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Yeah. yeah. Did you do acid very much? You know, I've never actually taken acid. Oh, I I actually have some acid at home in my freezer, and I haven't taken it yet. I'm just like kind of terrified. I don't know if, like. I'm I'm getting older and yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I really need to do that to my brain, but um, I I have it and I do feel like that window maybe closes for like <laughs> LSD. Yeah, I knew somebody who got really into LSD at like 27 or 28 and had never done it before. I was just like, what do you, what? Why? <laughs> That's like a drug for when you're. I don't know. I'm sure if you're very good at taking hallucinogens, actually, like you can probably take LSD for your entire life and be like okay with it. But it seemed to me like. A, a bit more of a dirty high yeah. than like mushrooms, which is a very has a very spiritual relationship to the earth. <laughs> well, you know that's 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 a re- okay. So I guess I'm in this place in my practice where the work is becoming more ephemeral, uh-huh. and I kind of want to you know go other places inside of my brain, which is why I bought the acid. Oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but um, so I was speaking with you're this, gonna have a studio visit with yourself. Th- that's the idea. <laughs> but um, I was. I was speaking with a friend of mine and she's very big into like hallucinogens. Uh-huh. She's a she's a showgirl and performer in Brooklyn and she actually brought up an excellent point that the earth right now is suffering so greatly because of, you know, pollution, global warming and just bad fucking vibes. Bad vibes that when if you're consuming consciousness that comes from the earth you're also consuming all that bullshit and oh. all and all that sickness that is contained within the earth. Which is why she believes that LSD is probably a better, interesting, um, better entrance way into the back of your mind. Whoa, that's very strange. Well, how? Wait, okay. When you when you're saying that you're really into hallucinogens, how how often are we talking about here? When you're younger, pretty often. I mean, like once a week. Not once a week, but I mean, with frequency. Yeah, I mean, at least once a month. Did you have a go-to, did you have a thing that you did at the beginning, sort of like a any type of ritual thing to begin a trip? I feel like people who do it regularly sometimes develop those. No, I didn't. I, it wasn't that kind of practice, you mm-hmm. know, I, and I, I was also like a baby. So like I didn't really know what I was doing. I just was following my instincts, which was to eat the mushrooms. <laughs> but um, I, I spent a lot of time in cars. Uh-huh. Which um, that was, that was a trip, um, like literally, you know, and figuratively, <laughs> it was like the symbolism of it was like really, yeah, really pronounced. But, but yeah, um, I tried to spend a lot of time in nature, which mm-hmm. it, that's a little cliche as well. No, that I mean that's a but that's how you do it. Of that's course, how, that's how you're supposed to do it. Like, I used to go to the Baker Woodlot. It was this thing on the. Uh, campus at Michigan State University when I was like 18 or 19 Mm. Um, and I liked to go there and eat mushrooms by myself and just like bring a backpack with some 
I had like a snacks. Yeah, snacks and like a discman. And I would like <laughs> listen to music and just kind of wander around the woodlot. Yeah. It wouldn't be like not some crazy amount. I wasn't eating like an, a fucking eighth of mushrooms or yeah. something, but just have a little bit and kind of go in and just weird out for a bit and kind of be away from everybody. I love but, that. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I don't think I could do it alone now. I you know and that I've definitely been leaning towards like tripping alone like and making it more of like this practice or like research. Um, I. Yeah, there, I don't find hallucinogens to be very recreational anymore. Like, of course, they, they were fun when I started, but I, I just I've gotten to a point where if I'm doing it, it's it's with purpose. Yeah, well, it kind of has to be right because you also build up so many things throughout your life that you might potentially have to be confronting when you're in that state. And when you're younger, it's just kind of like, who gives a shit? I don't yeah. pay rent. You know, like, <laughs> like, but all of these different things, and as you kind of like build that up, I feel like you do have to have, you have to be much more purposeful yeah. or, or know that you're in a good space, you're with the right people or something like that, as opposed to just like, you're at a party drunk and somebody's like, you are, you are shrews? And he's like, yeah, man. And then you're riding the subway home just crying. Give me, give me the shrews. <laughs> Four o'clock in the morning. Um, well, speaking of when you were younger too, so I'm, am I correct that you grew up in a family of spiritual mediums? Yes. Um, What's that about? Not my immediate family. My immediate family like really tried to shelter me and um, – I guess I kind of grew up a little privileged. I grew up on a military base with um, going to like a private military academy. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, that's a part of me. Whoa. <laughs> I had no idea. I, I, you know, my life story. It doesn't make me think one way or the other about <laughs> you, but it's just like a, a weird tidbit that I feel like I would have learned by now. Yeah, I know. I, you know, the thing <laughs> is that like I feel like I lived such a traumatized childhood that I kind of tried to push everything like to the side and simplify things sure. because my like my life story is kind of convoluted and I've just had this lifelong identity crisis but um so yeah I I grew up kind of privileged and um I guess my parents really wanted to be like American I you know my parents are Puerto Rican and I mm -hmm. grew up in Puerto Rico and they just they wanted that kind of assimilation they really bought into the idea of the American dream so they they rejected everything that like kind of went against that idea and huh. that's that's just i guess that's the condition of of like from i'm only going to speak from my experience of a lot of puerto rican people that come to you know the states so my my parents tried to shelter me from this the spiritual practices of my extended family mm -hmm. which um that's really where it was like aunts and uncles and aunts and uncles and um, grandparents, but they they practice this sort of hybrid spiritual. I don't even know how to categorize it, but um, yeah, it, it combines these old traditions of like divination and chanting and mediumship, and and it combines it with. Catholicism and that kind of imagery. It's uh -huh. not. It's not Santeria, which you know is another synchronous religion that does the same thing. The, what my family practices is very disorganized, and you know, it. And yeah, it's. So what? What is? If I can ask, what is mediumship? Like, what? What is? What is the act of being a medium? Okay, and it, maybe I'm even. I'm probably saying that shitty, and it's not the right way. No, to ask, no, but. it's it's a perfectly acceptable way to ask. Just like I said, what you know, what I grew up with, you know, through my family is not organized in a way that things could be disrespectful. So, 
I don't think there is a right or wrong way to ask, hmm. but I guess the, the brand of mediumship that is practiced in my family would be really closely related to shamanism. Okay. So a, a medium kind of is this vessel or this conduit to the spirit world. So a medium can travel um, to like another side and, mm -hmm. and bring back knowledge, like what's practiced in shamanism, or they can straight channel like a spirit or an energy or a deity and br bring something from the other side into this realm. And are they doing uh, healing and things like that too, or is it more a means of communication? Um, it's more a means of, a, of communication. Um, the, my family, like, I wouldn't say that my family is somebody that, like, they're, for example, my grandmother. You couldn't go and you couldn't call her up and ask her, like, questions, you know? Like, mm -hmm. the religion is very, like, close to home and practiced in, in that way. It's very personalized. Um, really intuitive then. Yeah. As opposed to following, if it's not, if it's just hybridization or it doesn't follow really, but it doesn't follow any specific kind of dogma, but it's really person to person, that makes sense that it can't yeah. really be like, like how do you articulate that feeling to somebody, you I know? Don't, I, I don't know. know that you could. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's interesting. When did you, wait, how old were you when you left Puerto Rico? Well, I moved to Miami when I was 11 years old. Okay. With my immediate family and um you grew up in like good florida well yeah <laughs> well, I mean, as opposed to, like, i just feel like i meet all these different people from florida and they're just like you don't even know what it's like man it's, it's like, like in the middle of florida or like north woods. florida like, yeah i know i've i've been there too but um no i grew up in miami um the the suburbs of miami um kendall uh which is west of the city and it's i mean miami dade county itself is enormous but um, but yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Miami, Florida. It was, I mean, Florida. I mean, even still, it was insane. You know, like <laughs> I saw some shit. <laughs> I could imagine. But um, um, well, it sounds like the if I'm sort of interpreting here correctly, that some of that <clears throat> approach to spirituality and the kind of intuition things has found a its way into the way that you make. Oh, in definitely. the way that you're making artwork. So yeah. when you're saying that your work is intuitive, like if you're working on a sculpture, does that mean there's really no sketch or anything that starts at first? Or there's like maybe a basic architecture and you just kind of build on that? Or Yeah, definitely. Um, I try to be better about that like now that I'm like really taking the, the business side. of. I've always taken the creative side of my practice and the making side of my practice really seriously, like you like you would like a spiritual practice, but I've never really taken the business side seriously. I'm always like, oh, I'm too punk for this shit. Like I can't like I can't really commercialize this. But now I, I'm thinking that maybe I was sabotaging myself and thinking <laughs> that way. And, and maybe it like, you know, driving like some kind of success in in that kind of practice is more punk in like this day and age like like before i feel like the idea of punk was really like empowerment through this self-destruction and it's like that's what the establishment wants you to do sure so like if you really want to be punk you have to be that thorn in the side and you really have to be successful and you have to like preserve yourself so yeah and it, it seems like, too, as you kind of grow up and are taking things a little bit more seriously, that even, like, 
intuition is great, but at the same time, you kind of have to budget for materials. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> right? bit, like, that's very true. You kind of be like, I got to stop using this extremely expensive shit that I just keep throwing on stuff. I yeah. need to be a little more. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, um, what was the question again? Oh, yeah, intuition and the practice. So, I mean, it's always different. Like sometimes it starts from an idea like I had I just have this sketch in my head and I just start building things and then you get to a to a roadblock and then you have to think about it differently and you just kind of feel your way through it. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it, cha- it changes t- every time you start a new project, how you approach it. And I mean, that's what I call intuition. <laughs> Remember Dunkaroos? Hell yeah you do! Those sassy ass graham crackers? That epic dunkable frosting! After school or by the pool, they kept you chug chug chugging along on that totally random teen hustle. But guess what? Now you're all grown up! You ain't got time for sweets! Hell no! Your palate is mature and thoughtful. You're on that savory tip. That's why Dunkaroos is introducing Drinkaroos, the perfect snack for when you're saddled up to the bar, sipping whiskey alone, and reading Deleuze and Watari's A Thousand Plateaus. Instead of graham crackers and frosting, we packed Drinkaroos with breaded mozzarella sticks and marinara sauce, buffalo wings and blue cheese, tater tots and ranch. They're out of this fucking world. Drinkaroos are available exclusively in Lower Manhattan and Brooklyn at a carefully curated suite of bars that you know and love. Stop by Beverly, Flowers for All Occasion, Left Hand Path, Forget Me Not, and Heavy Wood. And get your dip on tonight. Stranger Things was a hit among fans, and the most loved character of all was Barb, Nancy's best friend. After Nancy abandoned her at a party, though, Barb went missing, and no one but Nancy did. Barb's mom seemed to care too much about her disappearance. Later in the series, after Eleven sees her contorted, seemingly dead face in the Upside Down, it was somewhat confirmed that Barb died. However, fans begged to differ. Fan theories arose that maybe Barb is still alive and will return in season two. Sadly, Millie Bobby Brown, who plays Eleven, confirmed, no, she's not alive. like I feel like you use a lot of uh, really tactile stuff fabrics or maybe leather kinds of things or things that are really touchy like yeah I want to reach out and grab the sculptures or like pet them or touch them or something like that yeah I guess I, I want well some of the work is like I intend it to be completely interactive like the bodywork series were sculptures that the viewers is supposed to use and so I, I do draw inspiration from like actual healing practices, mm-hmm. um, which I, I don't want to. I don't want it to sound too new agey because I think like the new age movement it, 
is kind of corny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's also very uninformed and sure. a bit entitled. So I, I wouldn't call it new agey, but yeah, I, I draw inspiration from healing practices and and from the practice of you know mediumship and. Well, I feel like there's a yeah, there's a really I think there's a stark contrast, and it's something that. I wouldn't say that your work is new agey at all because I, I feel like I know exactly what you mean. It's like going to a going to a crystal shop in Sedona, Arizona. <laughs> like that's a very different type of like I'm spiritual and I'm connected than yeah. people who are, you know, uh actually doing the thing yeah. and or, or trying to carve out a way for themselves and not just being like, Oh, if I buy these things and I read this book, I'll be able to do this and this and I'll be enlightened. But something that's a little bit more personal and kind of drawn from within. Yeah. Um, and also like my, my work gets really dark sometimes, yeah. you know, it comes from a, like there, there's definitely a balance between like this idea of healing and um, therapy. And then it's like direct connection to trauma. Like it's not mm-hmm. just about like smiling and smelling incense. Like, that, like it, it gets pretty twisted sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like the entire new age thing is to just kind of pretend that there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing fucked up. It's all <laughs> like it's all really peaceful pan flute and like some incense burning <laughs> and like your chakras. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I guess I, I mean that that's definitely somewhere where I draw a lot of influence from is like these these therapeutic practices and like the idea of a regimen that, you know. Mm-hmm. What about the connection to like your interest in the paranormal? Oh, yeah. I want to talk about that for a little bit. What is, what kind of, and even if it's, you know, even if it's something that you're just sort of doing on your own, what is some of the paranormal research that you like to engage in? So, okay. So I have a, a sound project, which is where um, I kind of found my performative voice. Um, oh, is that, what is that called? Well, it's, now it's called Water Temple. Okay. Um, but I guess when I started making performance art, it was a, I would, I would start, I would officially start calling myself a performance artist as of two years ago. Okay. And when we met. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess I had always. I'll take credit for that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I guess my work was always kind of performative. Sure. Like, as I described, a lot of the work was interactive and, you know, meant to be used. And um, I was always pushed during grad school to be a performance artist. And I guess, like, I'm just a natural performer. Like, that's just my character. Yeah. But I I never took myself seriously as a performance artist until I moved to New York and didn't have studio space to build sculptures. So (laughs) I was like, I was like, shit, I have to perform now. (laughs) But um, I, I started off doing the, like, theatrical vignettes of, you know, different. I call them like stunts, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, that that didn't really go so well for me. I guess it just didn't sit right, and I I felt much more comfortable having a minimal presence in the performance. So I I was always making sound work to perform in front of, mm-hmm. and then the sound kind of just took over. So. Yeah, it's called Water Temple. That's uh, my project, and I make weird soundscapes. And so, paranormal paranormal research. Um, well, I, are they meant to mimic something, or I I don't think the soundscape. The, well, the, the, they don't sound. They don't mimic it. They they are you know kind of paranormal research. Um, when I 
build the soundscapes, I use different kind of devices and instruments for paranormal uh, research. And really? that, that's what makes the sound. So my, my coolest trick or toy is it's called a spirit box. Uh-huh. So it's this like miniature scanning radio that um, allows you to hear the like, it's like a little, it's like a little handheld radio. And you can hear, you know, the sound coming from it. And it'll also scan across frequencies while it's still playing, huh. which um, and at, you can vary the speed. And at, depending on, you know, the day and who's around and where you're at, you can hear voices through like the static what voices? Uh, well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is this used for? Um, like in its, what is its practical uses? Like, what 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 are people the, using it for? There's no practical use. I mean, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's just a listening device for spirit voices. Wow. So oh, uh, I got to tell my buddy Daniel about that. He he makes um, I don't know. I had Daniel on a couple episodes ago, but he's a he's a pal and he builds. Uh, his own like weird things that read electromagnetic fields and oh, things amazing. like like, <laughs> of, like quartz crystals and copper wiring and like he retools stuff and he's all yeah. about that stuff. I gotta ask him about the spirit box. I tried to build a Tesla radio which does the same <laughs> thing, but it it didn't work. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's a project I'm still working on. But yeah, I like I like sound like listening devices that that read waves and kind of picking up on the things that we just aren't attuned to. Yeah, that are like beyond your like beyond your field of sensory like pickup. It's kind of so you're you're using these devices to kind of like in lieu of maybe being a medium uh all the time. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know, it's funny. Like it, it's it's part of the practice and like that it makes like what can be boxed into like a little art category, mm-hmm. you know. But um I guess that there's a bit of lightheartedness to like the field of paranormal research, as you would say. Yeah, you got to be a little, <laughs> you got to have a sense of humor about it because yeah. it's a little, um, and, you know. And it also, I guess it connects to my work. Like my, my work operates in in like a space that's between the empirical and the superstitious. Hmm. And so like connecting like a, like a hardcore practice of mediumship with a field like paranormal research I think makes a lot of sense for like where my headspace is yeah because yeah. I, I kind of grew up between the two worlds like like I said my immediate family like really tried to shelter me from these like practices and they tried to raise me like super Catholic and um and then you know on the other side I I had this hardcore like sp- like spiritual side of my family that re- really went in deep with their with their spiritual practice. Yeah. And you've talked before, I've heard you speak about um, these kind of intersections or overlaps between queerness and mysticism. Mm -hmm. And could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I guess that the way that I came up with that also kind of intertwines into like my sense of humor. So um, queerness always has operated in like this weird, like slippery liminal space Mm -hmm. in, in between like the little... Uh, classes of society where it, it was like it, it's not always overt it's sometimes very subversive mm-hmm. and I feel like mysticism is pr- operates the same way and so 
that over like identifying that overlap was really powerful for me when when I was able to like take a step back from my practice and look at the things that were influencing me and my identity and just make that connection it, that was definitely a breakthrough for me yeah that's interesting and I feel like I guess I'm sort of articulating this while I'm thinking it but I feel like there's a level if you any person who's like slightly sensitive or has some kind of you know uh, any person who's sort of an empath is almost always like slightly mystic and slightly queer, even if they wouldn't overtly identify as that. Oh yeah, you know def- what I mean. Definitely, and I mean, uh, I mean, the whole art world, is <laughs> fucking, they're all queers. Not that, <laughs> not that they're not that they're overtly sensitive, but I simply mean people who are drawn to that kind of like that want to communicate through something that isn't strictly language or something else have. Anybody who's making useless objects out of like materials and trying to communicate something that can't be said is a mystic, whether they want to admit it or not. And virtually all of them have, they're on some spectrum of queerness. Yeah. I I, I feel like. I mean, (laughs) wait, I don't want to say anything else. Okay. No, no, we don't need to. (laughs) I don't want to out anybody. (laughs) You need not do that. This is not the, this is not an outing forum. Yeah. Um, well, what about your connection with uh, Nightlife and Incarnata Social Club? I want to talk about how that got started and sort of were you already participating in, um, you know, for lack of a better term, like like sort of cabaret style shows? Or is this sort of or did you create an entry for yourself through uh, this? Y- yes and no. Like I... Uh- I guess when I moved to Brooklyn, one of the things that was really attractive about New York was the nightlife and the idea of the queer community, which um, I, I Orlando just did air quotes <laughs> for anybody who's listening. I, well, I have a lot of ideas about nightlife and co- the idea of community, but um, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I did a couple of like I, I guess just weird drag shows, which were really welcomed in Brooklyn, but I. Like you participated in them or oh, you yeah. bring them on? No, I performed. Okay. Like, I, I what was did, your drag name? I, I did drag. It was Black Hole. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, it just it didn't feel right because I'm not a drag queen. I'm not a showgirl. I, you know, I always approach things with, you know, this mindset of like a contemporary artist. And there just wasn't really a platform for that. Mm-hmm. So um, I linked up with a friend, Kembra Fowler, and mm-hmm. I presented these ideas to her. And she said that she would support me if I wanted to, you know, put on this kind of night. And and we did it. And it started at Berlin, which coincidentally, Berlin's on 2nd and Avenue A, yeah, which yeah. I'm very familiar with that intersection mm-hmm. because of um, where we met at the... Bruce High Quality Foundation University, um, and it, it it started in a basement, and it was once a month, and it was kind it was kind of amazing the like what we did, and we brought together all these people that you know would have probably were always working like you know in parallel like they were all there like these people are all doing it like these are artists that are out there performing and making it happen which that like. That's another thing. Like as a performer, just to get out there and like actually do it and like make a career as a performer, that's amazing. Like, like that. It's not an easy thing to like get on stage and then like make a career out of it and yeah. make a name like yeah. for it. And because like performance artists don't make any fucking money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like so many shows, you just do, you get like a cab home out uh-huh. of it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be able to like sustain that kind of practice is kind of a miracle. 
Or you're like the you're like the entertainment at dinner, basically at the opening. They're like, "Well, it's an opening. We should have a performance." Can we make this into a performance? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. but um, the the fact that like we were able to pull all these people together and you know book nights with fifteen sh- like fifteen performers each night. Was it about putting them into putting their work in conversation with each other, just sort of contextualizing it because maybe they were in different. Uh, working in different scenes um sometimes yeah it was like very like heavily curated in that way like we would think about oh this person makes work makes sense with this and then other times it was kind of just like sure like you're my friend let's do a show yeah yeah so i mean incarnado it was like really like easy that way mm-hmm. like it was never meant to be like this hardcore like uh, like art you know thing it was always just it's a night in a nightclub where we're going to host performance artists. Yeah. And we'll bring such a better vibe, I feel like, to seeing performance art and takes away some of the uh, uh, I don't even know what word to use, but it just strips away some of that kind of hoity toity whatever about performance art. I mean, if people yeah. are because if you're watching a performance, you want to have like a drink. You want to be hang, you know what I mean? You want to like be able to bullshit with people about it afterwards and yeah. like hang and have some social element to it. Um, and situating it in the nightclub in the context of nightlife, it becomes something where everybody's participating and making, and they're not strictly an audience, it seems like. No, yeah, exactly. And um, it was definitely, it was very much an environment and uh, an atmosphere that was, that I had never experienced before. And, um, you know, working with Kembra, she's been working in New York sure. for, for decades. How did you hook up with her? Um, she was actually teaching a class on performance art, and um, I took it. I signed up. Um, I guess I lacked confidence as a performer, so I was like, "I need to take a class." Sure. So, um, well, that's a good teacher. Yeah, I, I feel mean, like. And that was like when when the opportunity presented itself to like take a class with Kembra. I like you, you take it. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I saw. I think it was it, maybe it was the two thousand eight. Whitney Biennial, yep, and, I, and I think it was the first time that I came to New York without my parents, and I came with like a <clears throat> kids from my school, and we went to, I think it was the Armory part of the Whitney Biennial, mm-hmm. and she was doing the voluptuous horror of Karen Black, and I just was like, what the fuck, <laughs> what the fuck is going on in here? I was floored, had no idea what I was even witnessing, was so confused, I was like, is this awesome is it terrible am i scared yeah. am i grossed out am i turned on like all of these conflicting emotions and so that would yeah that would be a great person to study with but so and you two just kind of struck up a friendship from taking the class yeah i guess um she just saw how serious i was so it was kind of natural and we're, we also have like similar interests in like the paranormal and you know Spooky stuff. Yeah. So well, I think something else that's kind of cool about that is that by working with this person who's been really established and has been around and kind of knows the ropes, it you're producing something that is uh, becomes this intergenerational conversation, which I think is something that um, I, I not necessarily intentionally so, but I feel like we as younger artists uh, skip out on a lot, just kind of because of the way that social fabric works or something. But where we kind of like 
we want to make sure that things are diverse and inclusive and all these things, yeah. but we really rarely ever think about like, oh, are we inviting people from like different age groups yeah. who have similar interests or who maybe have been doing this shit for 30 years that we could learn a thing or two from? I yeah. know I'm not great at doing that. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> and it's really shitty because like now we have the internet and the people that like were doing this, uh, like Kembra, they didn't have the internet when they were like, yeah. when they were performing in nightclubs. Like they were making flyers, which mm-hmm. I'm sorry, are much cooler than a Facebook event. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. No, I, will, <laughs> I will look at I will look at uh, books of, like, punk flyers. Yeah. Like, just the fucking insane things that people draw on them mm-hmm. is exciting. And yeah. it's cool to think about the time and the space and somebody putting that effort into it instead of a uh, fucking Facebook event. Yeah, and I mean, like, there's so much... I feel like it's just so much more romantic and there's so much more freedom when, like... And this the, the generation that we're speaking of, they, they experience that and... They they didn't have this co- cookie cutter f- like forum of social media to like you know control everything. Yeah, build a brand and, and it, like everything's on metrics and engagement and people can publicly see how many people like you. Yeah, <laughs> like and, literally. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That felt it just feels so much more real when you're like just doing it. You know. Uh huh. So there's like the whole like internet aspect of it. Then there's social media. Like now, like the art world wants everything to be like. Instagrammable, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and and once again, these are uh, we were working with artists that like just didn't that didn't exist, mm-hmm. and so their approach is you know really unexpected, yeah, and and yeah, I mean we we learned a lot working. I mean, Incarnata is like a family now, you know. Yeah. So is it still? Are you still? doing it periodically yeah, i we, feel like you've, you're on a little rest we're on a little rest we had a bit of a um hiatus just because of travel and other projects but we'll be back soon yeah where else have you worked with besides berlin uh well it's mainly only at berlin that it happened but um there was an iteration of incarnata social club in las vegas oh whoa yeah um, (laughs) (laughs) with locals or did you bring a bunch of people with locals um kember was out there and um she asked if she could do an incarnata night out in las vegas and i was like yeah why not like make this like a national like platform and then um also um, did you do it at knockdown we did it at knockdown center knockdown center um generously hosted us um on one of our larger events and thank you knockdown center <laughs> but um but yeah those that that's where it's been um and we're looking for somewhere to host us now. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, what did you for? Because I feel like there's probably some people listening who have, you know, this kind of ache or desire to want to try to produce a space. And yeah. I'm using space sort of metaphorically here, but to mm-hmm. create something that they can inhabit. And what was maybe what's some advice from when you started working with a venue or how you like approached like even maybe like the economics of it as, as yeah. much as you're comfortable saying but because yeah. that's always that's just like a practical thing that we don't talk about a lot is just like well shit sometimes this costs money or you have to ask people for favors or you have to do this and- yeah i mean fuck the money like ask people for favors <laughs> because a lot of the time people are just willing to like help you if you ask them nicely you know um, or if they feel like they're collaborating or like if they, if they have some authorship over it too if they feel like they're collaborating or like people are gonna buy drinks at the bar like you know that that's always helpful oh for the venue yeah, yeah for the yeah. venue you know <laughs> um i meant friends but yeah and, no that's a big 
That is a thing to be able to convince a place that they're going to make some money off the yeah. audience, right? Well, well, that's the thing. That that like that was what was really shitty and what motivated Kembra at least to participate in Incarnata is that you know when she was coming up in New York, like all these bars in the East Village were open to like just nutty, like weird, shitty performance art happening in their bar, and because it was New York City, mm-hmm. and now it it's like it, it's not that way. It's like right. how much money can we fucking make? Uh-huh. So. To you know, Kembra is friends with a, a friend of Berlin, and so they generously offered us the space, and you know it was successful. But um, I I think that if I'm giving people advice uh, that you know to, for finding like a location or starting a space or creating an atmosphere, I would say you know call your friends, <laughs> call in those favors, and and just do it. Like I think a lot of people when they try to start something, and this is not just in like terms of creating a platform, even just in art making, like this is advice to artists is, you know, d- like don't put the cart before the horse. Sure. And I guess that, that that's my drive and what I call my intuition is, you know, don't, don't think about it too far in advance. Like just actually start doing it. Yeah. And like, cross the bridges when you get to them yeah know that you might do a couple things that suck or it might yeah. be shitty once or twice or something but you just kind of otherwise it, like the anxiety of wanting to do it is worse than reflecting being like oh we should like the sound wasn't great or yeah. this like no it, fuck it's it. a very <laughs> different anxiety dover beach by matthew arnold the sea is calm tonight the tide is full the moon lies fair Upon the straits, on the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet as the night air, only from the long line of spray. Where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen, you hear the great and roar. Of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling At their return up the high strand Begin and cease and then again begin With tremulous cadence slow and bring The eternal note of sadness in Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean And it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow Of human misery we find also in the sound of thought, hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once too at the full, and round earth's shore, like lay the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar. Retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new. Hath neither really joy nor love nor light, nor certitude nor peace nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. 
And I wanted to talk about the trip you just went on. Oh, yeah. To South Korea. I went to Seoul for a, a month. Yeah. Was that through Apex Art? Through the Apex Art Foundation. What is the Apex Art Foundation? Um, they're um, a platform here in New York. Um, and Well, they're more like an institution. They've been around for, I believe, 25 years. And they're this alternative program for artists and curators. They have um, a space in Tribeca where they host exhibitions. And then they have their International Artist Fellowship, which is what I received. And um, is that something that people apply to, or is it a nomination no, no, type no, no, of deal? No. This is I like, actually know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 it's like a fucking reality TV uh, show. You get an email that says that you've been nominated by somebody that you know, and you're up, you're you're in the running for a month long residency in some far off fucking place, and but you don't know where you're going, and they ask you if you're interested, and then you <laughs> fill out like this. This a- an application that you know it's really short, which like I was like suspicious. I was like, why aren't they asking me for like my CV and my <laughs> and uh, maybe they did, but it it, uh, it was just really short, like compared to other residency. Like, why the fuck is this easy? Yeah, it, it was just really easy. <laughs> so then they they. <laughs> I love, being, I love being angry because something is convenient to do. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, <laughs> this, this is just, it was just, just such a whirlwind experience. And this is all happening so fast. It, like the, When did they contact you? They, oh, I forgot. Because you like, went for September. I went for September, but they contacted me maybe in April, like before the summer started. But uh, like the, the from email being notified that I was um, nominated to like the, it, to the application, to the interview process, all happened within maybe a week and a half. Whoa. Which is com- like that's not not how most residency programs like work like that or grant or you apply or, and then you wait 11 months, months. yeah <laughs> so so it was a lot and um they don't tell you where you're going until after you've been told that you're awarded the fellowship uh-huh. and you've agreed to go where wouldn't you have gone i guess i if i said yes i would have gone anywhere <laughs> <laughs> but um they they don't send people to like westernized cities like they won't send people to london they won't send people to berlin they won't send people to paris they they really want you to have this experience of a culture that is very far removed from like a big art city sure so um so yeah they sent me to seoul that's pretty cool yeah um what was your charge like what what were you to be doing just kind of experiencing it uh yeah um so they they call it an artist residency, but they recently like started referring to the program as a fellowship because residency is kind of uh, misleading when it comes to what I actually was doing with Apex Art. Yeah, it has a pretty and, specific connotation. And and you know this the the International Artist Fellowship developed out of this need for or this desire for an alternative to a traditional residency program, which usually you know ships an artist out to some other some far off place and then locks you in the studio, and you're forced to produce an exhibition in thirty days, mm-hmm. and you don't really you know absorb the place that you're in, and you're trapped in your art mind and this networking mind that. You could have just stayed in New York and done that. You yeah. Know? 
So it does seem funny to leave New York to network. Yeah. It, or, <laughs> or leave leave New York to talk to the same people that you know from New York and hang out in like similar bars surrounded by artists, you know. Art- That's what Art Basel Miami is. Yeah. It's you like, go to Sandbar <laughs> and it's just Bushwick. It's just Bushwick. Like, what the it's, fuck is going it's on? It's all the same people. But <laughs> so they re- they they really believe that that is is not beneficial to artists in the way that just going somewhere by yourself is yeah and um we're taking a fucking trip right yeah i mean it's just like like that's why a a road trip or going someplace new rules and it can have just because it's not object oriented or product based or process based doesn't mean that it isn't going to have like these profound lasting effects or points of inspiration for making work it could be way more valuable than just like working on some project that you already have kind of made up and decided how it's going to end. Right. Yeah. And also like artists can, can be kind of pretentious in that like, what do you they, mean? They, <laughs> like, like, and, and it's, this is programmed into like the art world and the market is like for artists not to experience new things. It's like, once you're in, like you stay in this like really insular community that like only communicates with itself. Mm-hmm. You only should like one, once you're at this certain level of, of, you know, art, you, you stay within this like really close group of, you know, artists that are at your same level. And, yeah. you know, very rarely do you see like, a you know, an emerging artist that has never shown before with someone who has had a career of 50 years and that I feel like that doesn't really facilitate growth. Mm-mm. And so, so this program really like lends itself to, to that need. Um, but what were you doing? Were you just cruising around Seoul? Yeah. Getting um, to know the city? One of the limitations of, um, I don't know if I like that word limitations. Um, one of the guidelines. Parameter. Yeah, n- n- <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't like anything that like feels like a rule. <laughs> like I don't like words that feel like rules. So let's just say, like, one of the suggestions, like one of the firm suggestions, <laughs> is that you don't make any art while you're on this residency. Um, you're not allowed to network, so you're not allowed to, you know, meet with curators or, or other artists unless it's been programmed by apex art Hmm. um while you're there you have a 30-day itinerary of um maybe five things to do in a day so you're you're super busy um you're running around the city back and forth and you're meeting with friends of the of the foundation or past fellows or um just support hosts that um apex art has in the places that they send people but um, yeah, it was it was a really busy thirty days, and the activities range from volunteering at a children's center to um, climbing a mountain. Hmm? Um, yeah, I climbed a mountain. <laughs> what the fuck? I thought I was gonna die. I would, but um, I would probably just kill myself at the bottom of the mountain. I didn't. I didn't die. <laughs> Incredible. But uh, yeah, and and there are some classes. Like I took an embroid a traditional Korean embroidery class, and like a knot workshop so there there was oh, what not like like to make a knot yeah like there's um a, a decorative art i think you pronounce it dungling which is um yeah it's a decorative art that um is traditional in korea it's like rope origami like just yeah. being able to like build these kind of crazy weird forms yeah, out yeah of tying yeah. a knot yeah yeah that makes there, sense there's like 300 knots that you tie in a boat right 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know either. I'm I no mean, sailor. That's funny. I spent a lot of time on boats, but I never really learned anything about them. I just know they float. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how was getting around the city? Uh, it sounds like you had a, a decent amount of kind of like guides and help and stuff, but was it a no, little crazy it, at first? I did not have a lot of guides. Um, when it came it, to navigating. It's, it's all, you're you're basically on your own with like a little piece of paper and you're like oh. running around. It felt very much, you know America's Next Top Model, the episodes where like the girls have to go on go-sees and they like, they're, they're like, oh, here's this direction. It's in French. You're in Paris and you've never been here before. You've been here for 12 hours go meet this like really important like designer that's how it felt like hmm. but could you use like a smartphone yeah um well actually my phone didn't work when i was in seoul at all. <laughs> <laughs> but um <laughs> luckily koreans are very advanced in terms of infrastructure and getting around that city is like a fucking cakewalk like like the wayfinding is really good just like, like it makes sense everything makes so much damn sense like uh, first of all, you can't kill yourself on their subways because there's like barricades between the platform and the tracks that only open when the train is there. So there's no jumping in front of trains. Yeah. Um, so South Korea also has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. It's always on the top 10 list. I did not so, know that. Yeah. So I guess it's there for a reason. But um, wow. But yeah. And the train is just like, it's like smart. Like, there's like arrows and maps on every station that tell you which direction the train is going. It tells you the next stop. It, you know, it's just right. like New York needs to catch up, man. Like, th like I remember when I first got to New York and I got on a train going the wrong way. Like that never happened to me in Seoul. Like you always, uh, there's, and you don't even speak Korean. It, I don't speak Korean. <laughs> and it, it's just like always clearly marked which direction the train is going. Yeah, I wish life was like that. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> That's that's really wild. Were you living alone? Yeah, I had a little Airbnb that um, was so cute. It had like a little kitchen. It had a washing machine. Oh, the bathrooms in Korea don't have, um, most people don't have like bathtubs, like a proper tub in their home. Okay. There's a drain in the floor and then there's a hose and like you can just like shower, like standing in the middle of the bathroom. Whoa. Oh, yeah. cool. It's so efficient and it's really cool too because you can like also kind of clean the bathroom, like just spray the hose around. Yeah. That's a great idea. It's so good. The only like downfall is that the floor is always kind of wet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that like that was like weird. It's always like kind of swampy. Um, bathhouse and spa culture is like huge there. It's just like since ancient times, like people just went to the spa and bathed together, which was like, it was really cool. Like just being naked in a room full of strangers and like everyone just hanging out, like bathing together. That, like, I wish that was like more the norm here in America. Yeah. Where it's like not, not in a lame way, but where it's just like being nude is desexualized. Yes, it's not a, yes, it's, yes. it's just a, these happen to be human bodies. Yeah, and, and you're just, in a room as opposed to like it's just <laughs> how it's just how people look <laughs> but um i feel like we like maybe it would you, like especially now with such like fraught political like fabric um i think it would unite people more if we just were like naked together more often it it's certainly like when you have a friend that you can be nude in front of there's like a bond there yeah right and, well that that's how people like go to the spa they they like go with their friends like and they're also like they drink a lot in korea in, in south korea like it's 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 you know it's just they party hard yeah. and the spot and like the, like a normal like weekend night out will involve like 
going out to a bar, getting hammered, um, eating like street food late night, and then going to the spa at like four or five a.m. after the bar closes, and like sitting in like the sauna. And it just kind of sobers you up, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that really bad for you? I don't know, <laughs> but um, I'm I, just thinking. I'm just, I'm just having like a flashback to being in high school and like the first time that everybody drank in a hot tub, and how oh, like yeah, just yeah. everyone gets wasted. how buck everybody got mm-hmm. and how inappropriate it was. I actually haven't been drinking alcohol. It's been um four months now. Whoa. Yeah. Um, which is weird because I still I still work in nightlife. I still mm-hmm. host parties and stuff. And um, I've just eliminated, like, alcohol abuse from, you know, the equation. And It kind of sounds like what you were saying earlier about the work and trying to do, like, being punk is taking care of yourself and being responsible it's... when, when <laughs> uh, powers that be hope that you don't figure out a way to do that. Right? Yeah, that's and that, that was one of the initial motivations behind, like, quit like just stopping like consuming alcohol and not that i was an alcoholic but i mean there was just i stopped seeing the point of it like it 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 didn't feel rebellious anymore sure it it just felt like anesthesia and i i just wanted to feel more things so um i'm sure i mean being like acutely aware of what's going on and your best self the whole time that you're in soul was I mean, it's probably a radically different experience than if you're just like, well, I'm going to go get trashed. Yeah. Um, and, and like miss these things the next day. Because it sounds like they had you on kind of a – probably would have been pretty unpleasant to be walking around hungover if you have all of these things you have to do every single yeah, day. Yeah, I never want to feel a hangover again in my life. It's like now that it's been four months, it, like without getting drunk, it just – it feels pointless and hangovers suck and – they get worse as you get older. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I just don't need that. And like I mean alcohol also like you like you don't realize how much it actually like affects your central nervous system while you're actively in the cycle of like drinking. Like of even if you don't drink that often, let's say like you drink like on the weekends, like that like the way that it depresses like your brain, like that those effects last like weeks beyond the point of actually consuming the alcohol. And I, yeah, I just, I, I don't need that. Like, uh, <laughs> sounds like you're generally on some other shit though. So yeah, you've got, you got plenty of ways to tap into some, uh, some weird thing going on. Yeah, you don't need to be boozed up to do that. Some, yeah. Some other side. <laughs> um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was in your work, uh, the relationship to camp. Yeah. And where, because I feel like, like you said earlier, like your work, it does have this kind of, it has a spiritual aspect. It also has a lot of darkness to it, but yeah. it also has some pretty funny, like campy elements that yeah. are like, uh, kind of like the sugar to put down the medicine type of deal. And I, I'm wondering what your, what's your relationship to camp? Yeah, I'm a big fan of camp. I mean, it's like, I feel like it's the quintessential, like queer art form. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that what I really love about camp is that camp isn't something that can be ascribed to anything. It's something that is kind of like teased out of of things that already exist. And yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And it's and it to me it operates the same way that queerness does in this like slippery like in between space where, you know, it, is this a joke? Is this serious? And I I mean. It's not irony. It's post irony. Mm-hmm. It's you know you it it doesn't really ever um, define itself as you know being com- you know completely humorous or completely serious. It's mm-hmm. just it, it is what it is. And I mean there it's 
my brand of camp is very layered. You know, there's there's definitely like a, a hardcore serious side to it. And then there's also just like this really, there's like a, like an absurdity to the mm-hmm. things as well. And I, I like that, that like my work doesn't take this hard edge. My work is always just suggestive of things. So I guess that's, that that's where I, that's why I like camp. Yeah. It's the way that you're describing it. It's kind of funny. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but in this way where, it it's a bit uncanny. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's maybe why it's why a you know an obvious example. It's why like a John Waters movie is disturbing is because it's rooted in the real. Yeah. Like it, it's an amplification or a this or a that of things that already happen, people that exist, and, and it might be this like you said a teased out version that isn't easily defined, and, mm-hmm. and that's why it's kind of unsettling, then maybe a lot of the time why, well, some of these people just have great senses of humor, but some of the time why it's funny is out of, an, the response to laugh is out of discomfort too, because yeah. you don't know how to process something, right? Yeah, um, I love John Waters. John Waters is a huge like influence, um, but his early stuff, like, mm-hmm. I mean... Did you see, what is that Oh, what the... Are you going to say Cecil be demented? No, no. Because that one, I mean, I, I'm... Uh, there was one that was even later that had Johnny Knoxville in it. Do you know what I'm talking no, about? No, I don't. It's ridiculous. I stopped, and I don't mean that in the way that, like, Pink Flamingos is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like, what? It was just Why bad. is this movie made? <laughs> but uh, I think it was called A Dirty Shame. I don't know. I don't want to talk shit on John Waters because I he is like one of my major influences. Sure, but everything can't be a hit. You know what? I want John Waters to call me on the phone. John, <laughs> you can but, get in touch with Orlando <laughs> through the podcast or through his, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to have a word with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, Orlando, thank you so much for coming in today, spending some time with me, and I hope you're reacclimating to the States and all of the fucking inherent trauma with having to live here and look at the news all the time. But uh, anything coming up that people should keep an eye out for that you're doing or? Yes, 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 yes. I have um, a performance coming up at American Medium Gallery. Oh, cool. Gallery when? In, yeah, in Chelsea. It'll be in December, but um, it's part of a performance series curated by The Spectrum, which is um, a queer art space in Brooklyn. And so, yeah, it's coming up that's my next big thing cool that's awesome do you know who else is in the series off the top uh, of your head or is it kind of coming together still it's still com- kind of coming together but um it's just you know amazing performers that i've worked with before in brooklyn and now we're gonna do it in a gallery in chelsea moving on up to chelsea yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool uh well thank you so much orlando thanks I for having hope me you have a wonderful week and to everybody out there you'll hear me next time